This is On Point, a podcast about bringing humanity to leadership communications. I'm your host, Andrea Lekashoff, President of Broadreach Communications. U.S. Naval Commander Mike Abershoff is at the heart of one of the most remarkable stories of organizational transformation. At 36, he was selected to be commander of the USS Benfold and was the most junior commanding officer in the Pacific Fleet. The challenges of this underachieving destroyer were staggering, with low morale and the highest turnover rate in the Navy. Few thought the ship could improve. Yet 12 months later, it was ranked number one in performance using the same crew. How did Mike do it? By replacing command and control leadership with commitment and cohesion. The lesson was clear. Leadership matters and culture is everything. Since leaving the Navy, Mike has worked with over 1,200 organizations instilling leadership initiatives at every level, achieving phenomenal change in unexpected places. Leaders identify with Mike's accountability for results in an environment where he couldn't make the rules. He focused on the one thing he could influence, his crew's attitude, because culture is the ultimate competitive weapon for any organization. And that's why the Harvard Business Review, the Wall Street Journal, and Fast Company have showcased Mike's story, and that's why he is a New York Times bestselling author for It's Your Ship, It's Our Ship, and Get Your Ship Together. Mike, welcome to On Point. Pleasure being here, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And um, as you know, we go way back. We we actually go back 20 years. It was 20 years ago in January that we had you up to Ivy, to the Ivy School of Business, um, to speak to our entire MBA class and, in fact, the entire global Ivy community. And uh, since then, Mike, it's been such a pleasure to have you back up to Canada. Uh, had you back up to, you'll remember, um, Canada's uh, Best Managed Companies, uh, their conference where you address CEOs. And more recently, a few years ago, to uh, address the YPO community. So I'm very, very uh, excited to have you on our podcast and have you tell our story to our listeners. And on a per capita basis, I'm more popular in Canada than I am in the United <laughs> States. Uh, seriously, my book sells more in Canada than uh, on a per capita basis than in the U.S. And um, the gentleman that is considered the Warren Buffett of Canada, uh, Prem Watsa, yes. uh, CEO of Fairfax Capital, bought 11,000 copies of my book. Did so, he? Uh, so Canada is near and dear to my heart. Oh, that's wonderful. And Prem is such a well-respected business leader here in Canada. So He is uh, fantastic. He, he's genuine and he's a great, authentic leader who cares about his community. Amazing. So, Mike, let's start at the very beginning so our listeners understand what shaped your leadership skills. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, a place called Altoona. Mm-hmm. And we I grew up in a house of 10 people, hmm. seven women and three men. And we had one bathroom in our home growing up. And uh, when I got out of the Navy and bought my first home, it has four bathrooms in it. And I visit everyone every day just because I can. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. And tell us what your childhood was like. Well, I was six to seven kids. My father made $13,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know that we didn't have anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it was a uh, 
you know, our home was a factory of getting seven kids off to school and getting them to do their, their homework and whatnot. And so, uh, all seven kids left home at age 17. And so my mother is 99 and a half years old and we think she should write a book on parenting about how to get your children to leave home. (laughs) That'll be a bestseller just like yours for sure. Um, And what a tribute to your parents and and also yourself that um, given that humble childhood, you graduated from the very prestigious U.S. Naval Academy. Um, What made you decide to join the Navy? Well, um, I graduated in the top 80% of my class at the Naval Academy. (laughs) So um, I played football and uh, that was my path to a college education. Um, and so I had several football scholarships to go play mm-hmm. and I chose the Naval Academy because it's on the, the Severn River in the Chesapeake Bay and, okay. and I, I love being on the water. And so that's why I uh, chose the Naval Academy. And what was it like to be part of the Naval Academy? Oh, I hated every minute of it. You are sleep deprived for four years. It's very rigorous. Mm. Um, I remember one semester taking 22 credit hours, uh, and you know, my nieces and nephews today take like 13 and um, I'm taking almost double the credits that they took, but it's 80% of the courses at the Naval Academy are engineering. Mm. And I am a poli sci major. And so it was doubly difficult for me that 80% of my classes were in calculus and physics and differential equations. And so, um, yeah, it was very challenging. Um, But I'm glad I went through it, and um, in many ways, I think it helped shape who I became. How is it that it helped shape you? Because they put you in situations where you ask yourself, would I have you know, that courage to hmm. do what other leaders have done in the past? Hmm. And so I was always measuring myself against um, you know, modern-day heroes. Uh, one of my modern-day heroes is John McCain. Okay. Uh, who, as you remember, was a uh, yes. prisoner of war in the in the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and you know I'd always ask myself if I was in the same situation, would I have the same courage that that he had? Mm-hmm. And so, it's a process of constantly challenging yourself and having the self awareness to understand what drives you and how you would show up. In, in times of crisis or in certain situations. And so I would always do what if scenarios, especially on the ship, like okay. what if this happened, what would be my initial response? Hmm. And so it was trying to train myself intellectually um, to be curious as to what my pre-planned responses would be if I see a certain situation. And that curiosity, was it innate or is it something that was taught to you at the uh, Naval Academy? I don't think it was taught to me at the Naval Academy, but it was something that I picked up throughout my career that when I took command of USS Benfold and, Mm -hmm. you know, it was one of the worst ships and I'd I'd ask sailors why we do things a certain way. At the beginning, the answer was always, that's the way we've always done it. And it drove me nuts because I hate Mm -hmm. that attitude and I banned that from the lips of my sailors. But, um, you know, our, our life is a succession of, events and opportunities Mm. and nobody is perfect and there's no such thing as a perfect leader and there's no such thing as a born leader but the challenge is 
how do you learn from events and how do you become better in the future? And so um, I think that's what I tried to do more than anything is to learn from uh, past examples and my own past experiences and, and constantly strive to become better. And part of that is not being satisfied with where we are, but always striving to continue to improve. And so uh, that's what drove that. And that drives me to this day is how to continue to improve. And, and, uh, and that's how you control your own destiny. If you become yeah. the leader in your industry, mm -hmm. um, no matter what happens to the economy or what happens in the world, you'll always, you know, be safe. And, uh, and I think that's what's driven me more than anything else is to keep my sailors safe, keep our fellow citizens safe. And you do that by being intellectually curious. And that's how you mm -hmm. become the leader in your industry. I love that approach. And so many leaders that will be listening to this podcast won't have the same privilege that you did in terms of worrying about the safety of their their teams, because much of what we do is, is very much, um, you know, working in public relations, working in banking, and, and certainly there's uh, an aspect of caring for your team and motivating your team, but certainly a, a different perspective um, that you had. But Andrea... Um... Yeah. Whether you're in the banking industry or whether you're in the military, it's, uh, it's all about um, controlling your own destiny yes. and making it safe for you and your family. Yes. Um, and no organization has their future assured, not even Amazon. Uh, the new CEO of Amazon has said he expects it'll go bankrupt sometime in his lifetime. And so the challenge is how do you keep yourself safe and how do you keep mm. your family safe in a constantly changing environment. And that's to be intellectually curious and hmm. anticipate future events and then put yourself in a position to, to control your own destiny should that happen. I get that. Yeah, I see that. So before we get to the Benfold, let's talk about being in the Navy. What was the culture like and what was your experience like in the Navy? So quite honestly, uh, I'm actually <laughs> stunned that I stayed as long as I did. Mm -hmm. uh, in the surface community where the ships are of the Navy, our motto was always, uh, we eat our young. Oh. And um, I, when I took command of the ship and I saw my predecessor getting cheered off in a disrespectful manner, mm. it hit me, why do we eat our young? Yes. Uh, why are we proud of it? Mm -hmm. And what's keeping me from changing it? Mm -hmm. And I realized I had the power to change it all along. I just didn't have wow. the courage to do it. And so um, our culture, you know, as I was coming up through the ranks was kind of like survival of the fittest. If, mm. if you don't get the best rankings and the best evaluations, then uh, you don't get the opportunity to go to promote to the next level. Mm. And so uh, it causes a lot of hyper competitiveness that, um, that keeps organ keeps people from collaborating sure. across divisional and departmental boundaries. And, you know, to me, I, the way to, to be the leader in your industry is to foster collaboration and cooperation among all the stakeholders. Whereas the way it was when I was coming up through the ranks mm. did the exact opposite and, and fostered an unhealthy competitiveness mm. that, that didn't lend itself to collaboration. And do you see that unhealthy competitiveness in business today? Like Absolutely. And what is it, what does it look like? So, you know, rightly so, people take people want to be the best. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's who organizations want to hire. But 
it's up to the CEO or whoever's in charge of the unit to realize that it's not enough for an individual to succeed if it holds back the, the, the entire group from, mm -hmm. from excelling. And so on a ship, we typically have five departments and I've got to rank the department heads one through five and only the top one or two will ever, will ever get command of their own ship. And so it's a, it's a you know, Darwinian survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And that's what causes the, the non-cooperation and the non-collaboration. Okay. And after I saw my predecessor getting cheered off the ship, I changed the way uh, I evaluate department heads. And it was going to be how well you collaborate with your other uh, four department heads and how well you drive that collaboration to the lowest levels of your department. Beautiful. So instead of individual performance, um, my number one criteria for ranking officers was how well you collaborated and fostered that collaboration uh, to the lowest levels in your department. And so if you ask me what, what and we'll get to this later, what turned yeah. the ship around, mm -hmm. it was those five department heads working together as a team uh, for the good of the organization and where I see organizations um, erring is overcompensating that one star performer, um, but that star performer does nothing else to, to help anybody else in the organization or to mentor those coming behind him or her so that they can benefit from his or her wisdom. And, and I see that every day uh, in business, that lack of mentorship and that lack of realizing that that star performer has an obligation to help bring others along. I get that. Okay, so Mike, how about you paint us a picture of the USS Benfold and the state it was in when you took it over? Well, it wasn't the worst ship in the Pacific Fleet, but you know we were probably third or fourth from the bottom. Um, we, the quarter before I took command, our retention rate was 8%, meaning we were retaining 8% of the sailors eligible to re-enlist. We had one of the highest accident rates of any ship in the Navy and some of the poorest performance metrics. And the day I took command as my predecessor was leaving the ship for the final time, as his departure was announced on the public address system, my new crew stood and cheered at the fact that he was leaving. And in my entire career, I had never heard of or seen such a blatant sign of disrespect. Mm. And, um, and so not only am I inheriting a ship that has poor performance metrics and poor safety, but also one where the workforce is disrespectful uh, and dismissive of their chain of command. And so when you took the ship over, what were you thinking? So you, you saw that, you, you obviously started to engage with the crew. What was going through your head? All the things I can't influence. Hmm. Like I can't uh, choose our missions and I can't choose the people I work with, and I can't go back and ask for more money to get the job done. And I was feeling like I was a victim, that my career is over, that I will never get promoted again. And so I was obsessed at the beginning with, with all of those things. Um, instead of obsessing over the things that I could influence, like how I could show up better as a leader mm -hmm. and how I could make my team stronger and, um, and focus on the things that we have the ability to influence. 
And where did those insights come from? Had you gone through leadership training? Were you reading leadership books? Like where, where did that all come from? I don't read leadership books. Um, okay. To me, everything I did <laughs> you just write them. was common sense <laughs> and treat people the way I wish I had been treated coming up through the ranks. Hmm. And so you can't get that from a book. You can't yeah. get that drive that you want to be the leader in your industry um, from reading a book. And so, you know, you have to decide on your own what you need to do to stay, keep yourself safe and to keep your family safe and in changing economic times. And to me, it's, it's that desire to be the leader in the industry. And, you know, I'm considered one of the hardest working authors in the publishing industry. Mm. And I'm considered one of the hardest working speakers in the speaking industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even to this day, um, I do it because I have a passion. I love what I do. Mm. Um, and so you have to develop that drive. And, and I'll be honest, there were times coming up through my career where I was doing just enough to get by. And um, then I realized that I need to be better. I owe it to myself and owe it to others for me to be better. And so that's what caused me to, to change how I show up. Okay. So you're on the ship, you are engaging with the crew. Tell us sort of uh, progressively step-by-step, step, what, what steps did you take to turn the ship around? So I'd like knowing everybody's face in their. I like attaching a face to a name and to a job. Mm -hmm. And in the first month, I just couldn't remember anybody's. There were so many people, a crew of 310. I couldn't remember yeah. anybody's uh, face or name or job. And so then it hit me, I'm just going to interview every sailor. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had an index card for every sailor on the ship. Yeah. And I'd get their photo on it. And, um, and then I started to interview them. And I didn't have any major goals when I started the interview process. Mm -hmm. But after a couple, after I got comfortable at it, I thought I could use these interviews to drive change on the ship. Hmm. And so not only did I, you know, find out, you know, a little bit about their families and what their goals are in life. Um, I found out what they were most proud of in their lives. Hmm. And what I've come to find out is if people think you care about them, they will follow you into battle. Yeah. And in, in these interviews, I would, you know, ask them, what do you like most about the ship? What do you like least? What would you change if you were the captain of the ship? And they became some of the most um, enlightening, engaging interviews uh, that I've ever had in my life. And after I had a few under my belt, it hit me how smart these people are. And they're the ones on the front line doing the work. Mm. Why don't I include them in finding out how we could do that work better? Mm -hmm. And so that was my epiphany. Um, and, and pretty soon I started to get a high off these interviews because I learned so much hmm. and it gave me a greater understanding of what was broken on the ship and, and what I needed to fix and, and how to go about fixing it. And so all this came from the interviews and what the crew got out of it was they felt that I cared about them as individuals. I cared about their careers and we were able to establish, it wasn't a friendship, but it was respect. Hmm. And with that respect, uh, if I, needed, you know, if I needed to do something to carry out an order, um, they would say, you know, this is, this is what we need to do. It, uh, it may be tough to do it, but, but we're going to get it done. And so I think what we created was an organization that wasn't based on fear, but was rather based on respect. 
And if you show me an organization based on fear, I'll show you a sub-performing uh, organization. Mm. And uh, I remember when uh, you came to Ivy, you talking about some of the uh, really transformational but simple and uh, things that you did that didn't cost a penny that transformed the culture. Do you want to tell us a few uh, of those? Well, um, it was ideas from the sailors that mm-hmm. that gave me the idea for the transformational things. But first and foremost was retention. Mm-hmm. And that is gripping... Uh, the global economy today is not having enough qualified workers yes. um, to execute. Every business I talk to today is short of workers. Mm-hmm. Well, I faced that problem 20 years ago. Uh, I had an 8% retention rate. The day I took command of the ship, 20% of the billets were empty mm-hmm. because the Navy couldn't generate replacements fast enough. And if you look at what it costs to train or to recruit a new person mm-hmm. and to get them trained, uh, that's an enormous expense. And then if you lose that person, the loss of productivity until you can fire, find a new one mm-hmm. and, and get that person up to training. Well, there's a dollar cost for the U.S. Navy, and that's to recruit one person into the Navy and get him or her through the first eight weeks of boot camp. When you amortize you know, the cost of running our facilities and the, all the commercials mm-hmm. on television and whatnot, it's seventy to $85,000. And we were losing those people prior to their four-year contract being up and nobody's ever held accountable for it. Hmm. And so I'm here thinking, you know, this is a waste of resources to um, lose people before their contract is up and it hurts our readiness. Sure. So after I take command, retention is our number one issue. And I had a sailor getting out of the Navy and I call him up to my cabin and I said, why are you getting out? And he said, Captain, nobody ever asked me to stay. And I started thinking, hmm. you know, I can do this. Maybe we make this too darn, dif- darn difficult. So I did exit surveys. to. Con- Everybody said, Mike, you can't do anything about retention. They're leaving because of our pay. So I did exit surveys to confirm that pay was the number one reason why our people were leaving. And yes, pay is important, but it was only number five on the list of reasons why people oh. were leaving. Number one was they didn't feel like they were being treated with respect in the workplace. Number two, they didn't feel like they were being listened to. Number three, they didn't feel like they were getting the training they needed to do a great job. And number four, they didn't feel like they were being groomed for increased positions of responsibility. And so I can't do anything about pay, but I could focus on those top four things. For sure. And I changed the way we retain people. Typically, when you enlist in the U.S. Navy, you enlist for a four or six year contract. And if you wait to the last day when that person's contract is up to t- ask, are you staying or are you getting out? I mean, their mind is already made up. Sure. And just like what I've come to find in business, you know, if somebody leaves, they just didn't make up their mind that day. Mm-hmm. They had been thinking about it for four or six months prior to mm-hmm. they, they make that big decision. And so I implemented a program that nine months prior to a sailor's contract end date, that sailor would come up to my cabin for an interview and I would ask Mm -hmm. him or her point blank, are you thinking about staying in or are you going to get out? Mm -hmm. And if you're thinking about getting out, what is it that we could do now to help you change your mind? And what I heard from sailors was, gee, if you get me this training or put me into this education program or put me in a different job classification, you know, I'll stay. Mm -hmm. 
So here we were spending $85,000 to recruit somebody and get him or her through the first eight weeks of boot camp. And we're not going to spend $3,500 to put them in a training program that would keep them in the Navy. It's Mm -hmm. ludicrous. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you give me nine months uh, to solve a problem, you know, I can generally solve it. And uh, what focusing on one sailor at a time, my last year in command, our retention rate was almost 100%. We had the highest retention of any ship in the Navy, and it came, you know, one person, one sailor at a time. And what I used to tell my officers, it's cheaper to recruit our people that we already have than to lose them and have to go out and find replacements. And, you know, I know every industry is hurting um, for, for qualified workers, but in the U.S., 74% 74% of 18 to 24-year-olds in this country today are not even eligible to join our military due to education, mm-hmm. obesity, health problems, mm-hmm. drug usage, 74%. So automatically, mm-hmm. you know, three out of four people aren't even eligible to join our military. Mm-hmm. And so um, it is a crisis of how do you Um, what do you do to attract and retain the best and brightest? And I know that every business is facing that today, especially if you've got hugely talented workers, they're getting calls from recruiters every day. Mm -hmm. So the key is to recruit them while you have them before they ever leave you. And and Mike, you raise a really great point. It strikes me that I don't know that this is done very much, but during annual performance reviews, uh, or even periodically every six months, they could have those, let's call them instead of an exit interview, a stay interview. What is it going to take to have you stay? Are you thinking of leaving? Let's make a plan so that you can stay and you can get that growth and you can be satisfied in this job. I, I really, I, I love that approach. But I, I've got a different take on the stay interviews. Okay. The way we do it now <clears throat> with, you know, I've got a consulting group. Yes. Let's <clears throat> talk to somebody and Say they came from a different company or a different job. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what you like most about that company. Mm. And tell me what you like least and what caused you to leave. Oh, and great. when people are talking about a previous position, mm-hmm. they'll be honest with you. Sure. If you if you do a stay interview, tell me what you like most about this job, the chances are they could lie to you because okay. they don't want to be honest. So you find out what they liked most in a previous life. Mm and what they like least, and then say, are you getting that here? Hmm. And uh, if you're not getting that here, what can we do now to change that? Because, uh, you know, we would like you to stay. And so that's, that's the different spin on the stay interview that I would do, is to find out what, what they liked or disliked about their previous position uh, that caused them to leave. I love that. That's awesome. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the ideas that came up through the, the ranks as you were doing these interviews and how you changed the culture culture to infuse some fun and um, just some really great experiences that I'm sure many of the crew remember to this day? So one sailor comes in and says, do you know how many times we've painted this ship in the last 12 months? And I, and I said, no. And he said, six times. And every time we paint the ship, it takes us a month to paint it. So every other month we're painting this home, this ship. And he said, have you ever painted your home? And I said, yes. And he said, it sucks, doesn't it? And I said, 
yeah, what's your point? We've been painting ships for 245 years. Mm -hmm. He said, did you ever stop to notice why we have to paint the ship every other month? Mm -hmm. He said, whenever a new piece of equipment is added topside to the hull of the ship, it's being held in place with nuts, bolts, screws, washers, and fasteners that are made out of ferrous metal that rust in salt water. Mm -hmm. And when it rusts, it streaks rust stains down the side of the ship. And he said, have you ever heard of stainless steel? And it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I walked past this my first 16 years in the Navy, chipping and painting. That's the way we've always done it. Yeah. And when this sailor pointed it out to me, it hit me. I've got sailors hanging from the mast of the ship in a safety harness mm. doing $5 an hour work. And I've got sailors hanging over the side of the ship in a life, per, life vest mm -hmm. doing $5 an hour work. And it's like, if I can just reduce the number of times they do this, I can thereby increase safety and reduce the opportunity for sailors to get killed or injured. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's not to like? So we scoured the globe looking for the right materials to change this stuff out with, spent about $25,000, changed out everything we could, painted the ship. We did not have to paint the ship again for the next 10 months. And that program has since been implemented on every ship in the Navy. And it came because a 21-year-old sailor, you know, had the courage to, to raise his hand. Okay. And so another sailor comes in and says, um, San, our ship was stationed in San Diego which is an extraordinarily high cost of living area. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, we have sailors living in Tijuana, Mexico, and we have sailors living two hours out in the desert because they can't afford to live closer. Mm -hmm. And since work starts at 7.30, they sit in rush hour traffic, you know, wasting fuel and wasting their hard-earned money. Mm -hmm. And he said, if we just adjust the work hours, um, so that we miss rush hour on either end, we'll still get the same amount of work done, mm -hmm. but we will get to save time sitting in rush hour traffic. Hmm. And so I start looking at this. And so, you know, in the Navy, work starts at 7.30 and it goes to 4.30. Mm -hmm. You take an hour off for lunch. Okay. Well, in the Navy, after lunch, productivity drops dramatically sure. for all the various reasons. And I'm here thinking, gee, if we skip lunch, if we start work at six mm -hmm. and skip lunch and work till one, I lose, I will no longer have that drop off in productivity. Mm -hmm. So productivity will go up yep. and sailors will probably leave the ship and not stay for lunch, which means I can save money in the food budget. Huh. So I'm here thinking, what's not to like? Mm -hmm. I'd make the change. Work hours are now six to six to one every day. One sailor, John Rafalco lived out in Escondido, California, and it was a 50-minute trolley ride uh, to work. And he and his wife could only afford one car, and she needed it for work. Mm. And the trolley doesn't run that early to get him here by 6. Mm. So he put in a request, I'd like to start work at 7, and I'll work till 2. And his whole chain of command said, no, we have one policy for people. Huh. And, and I'm thinking, you know, the the one policy for people really doesn't apply anymore because yeah, we have so many different situations. And, and now with COVID, with, mm -hmm. with parents having to be at home with their kids while they take Zoom classes and whatnot, mm -hmm. or you don't have daycare for your children. Mm -hmm. the, the days of the one size fits all are over. Yes. And we have to be more flexible and more humane when dealing with people. So I went against his chain of command 
and I approved his request. And he was so grateful. Not only did he work past two, he would work till three, four, five in the afternoon hmm. because he was so grateful to that we cut him some slack. So anyway, he was um, a communications guy. Mm-hmm. And we get to the Middle East. And this was back in the early internet dial-up days when you had 56 kilobit, you know, <laughs> bandwidth. Uh, what's sad is a lot of people are too young to remember those days. I remember those days. Well, the military was the same way. We never increased the bandwidth of our satellites to facilitate the smooth transmission of uh, operational data. Mm-hmm. And so the satellite architecture over the Middle East completely crashed. And we were out of communications for seven to 10 days. And on his own, John Rafalco, he's 26 years old at the time, Hmm. researched every satellite over the Middle East. And he found that the Navy had just launched a satellite um, that was used for a classified purpose, but only 10% of the bandwidth was being used. And so he brings this idea to me, if we just switch communications over to the satellite, it'll solve the problem. So I pass it up to the two-star battle group commander. He passes it up to the (laughs) three-star fleet commander. They change it over to the new satellite, solve the problem instantaneously. So it was obvious that the future communication architecture for the Navy needed to be thought out because there was no plan. And so the chief of naval operations appointed a 10 admiral panel of uh, people to design the architecture of the future. And they asked me to come present. And it's like, it wasn't my idea. It was John Rafalco's idea. Mm-hmm. So I took John Rafalco to brief a panel of 10 admirals. And he knocked it out of the park. You, they were spellbound listening mm-hmm. to him and his knowledge of what the future of satellites should look like. So he developed a tremendous reputation as a result of that briefing. And two years later, he got handpicked to be the, the personal communicator for the president, president of the United States, George W. Bush. And wow. for six years, he patched all of the president's communications. And, and it was like, they would have never known about him mm-hmm. had I not put him in front mm-hmm. um, to brief his idea and get the credit for it. And what I find in businesses today, that leaders are hesitant to put those people on the front line uh, in front to take the credit. And to me, it's a sign of a strong leader when you pass the credit to the people on the front line who are doing the work. And I had a philosophy that my crew gets the credit for things that go right. I will take the blame if something doesn't work out. Hmm. And so it's a philosophy that has worked well for me. And, you know, I, I work with a lot of the top four accounting firms, mm-hmm. and one in particular. And, and I'm fortunate to be able to talk to all their new, uh, newly promoted managers and supervisors. And it's like your partners, give your partners credit. Mm-hmm. Um, if something goes wrong, you take the blame. If something goes right, give your people credit and your partner will know that you're a great leader if you do that. Uh, it's so to me, it's a sign of strength. Um, and to put your people first and give them the credit. And that's how you get the best and brightest to want to come work for you. If they know that they're going to get credit and along the way, you're going to get that credit as well for fostering this culture that, that permits the best to want to come and work for you. 
And so to me, that's a, it's a sign of a great leader, a strong leader, when you give your people the credit for great ideas. And, and I've read in one of your books, you, you mentioned, you know, the ability to conjure greatness from others is uh, a common trait among the best leaders. Is that what you're talking about or does it take it to another level? So I found that the foremost powerful words in the English language are, what do you think? Hmm. And when somebody would come to me with a problem, they're expecting me to give them the answer. Well, if I give them the answer, that absolves them of responsibility for the result. And so what I, and I stumbled on this, instead of telling them what the answer was, I would say, what do you think? This is your ship. Mm. You know, what, how would you do this? You're, you're an owner. And well, this is what I would do. And I say, do it. And when, when we execute on their recommendations, then they take ownership for the results. And if you, if I were to bark an order, all I would create are order takers mm-hmm. and order takers don't accept accountability for the results. It's, I was just doing what I was told to do. So at the end of the day, I would say to my sailors, it's your ship. You know, what yes. do you do? What do you think? And that's where the title of my book came about. Yes. And what drove the performance was them feeling and taking accountability for the results. Got it. And, you know, we've all been through over a year and a half of COVID. How have you seen um, cultures change and leaders change as a result of, of everything uh, we've been through as a global community? It's been tough. Mm. And if anybody says they weren't affected by it, um, they need, they're lying or they're, they're mm-hmm. not aware. Everybody has had their lives upended. Yeah. And I'll be honest, there were days when I was depressed. Mm. You know, and it's like, you know, can't get on a plane, Um, you know, work is stopped. And, Mm -hmm. and, and I found, so on the ship, whenever I found myself being down, I realized everybody else around me would be down. (laughs) And so what I think as a result of COVID, leaders have to be more aware as to how they're showing up Mm. and they need to stop being, you know, a downer instead, you know, find be a realist and an optimist to find a way to, to get the mission accomplished. But also I think as a result of COVID people need to be more empathetic. Mm. And, you know, I know, you know, grandparents who couldn't see their grandkids, you know, for the last 20 months, uh, people who have had loved ones, you know, taken from them or in the hospital for long periods of time, or parents who suddenly have to babysit their kids all day long because there's no daycare and, and, or they're taking classes from Zoom. Everybody has been affected and we've had to change on the fly. And so I think uh, leaders need to be more empathetic to the situation that their workers face and come up with alternative solutions as to how to get the job done. Just like I came up with an alternative solution mm-hmm. for John Rafalco. Mm-hmm. I think leaders today have to come up with alternative solutions and, and one size does not fit all today. And what's your take uh, on cultural change where um, people are working from home or there's a hybrid model of people coming in and uh, staying at home or people who are immunocompromised and can't come in? What's your take on the impact that's had or or will have on the corporate culture? I think um, it's going to be long lasting. Mm-hmm. So the official death toll in the U.S. from COVID over the last 20 months, I think, is about 640,000. Mm-hmm. But I saw a study that there are over a million excess deaths 
during that 20 months, which means that up to 400,000 deaths did not get counted in the official t- statistics. Mm-hmm. And I've seen one um, respected economist uh, put a figure that for every person who died from COVID, there's potentially four to six long haulers for every person who died. Wow. And so when you think about, um, we don't, we, no, the long haulers don't get any uh, attention or publicity sure. and they're uncounted and we don't know how many long haulers are out there. Yep. And, you know, it could be, you know, five or 6 million uh, people still sure. um, not able to um, be a hundred percent. And when you, when you add that to, there are 11 million open jobs in the U S mm-hmm. and we only have 8 million people in unemployment. Uh, it's obvious that there's a tremendous structural shortage uh, of workers that could exist for some time. Yeah. And so if we as leaders don't um, acknowledge that and figure out a way to uh, empathetically deal with it, there are businesses out there who will hire our people from us. And so if, if we're not, uh, if we don't step up to the plate and acknowledge it and come up with realistic outcomes for our people, um, other businesses will. And, uh, and there's going to be a tremendous opportunity for people to search for the right culture and the right uh, job opportunity if, if we're not going to provide it in our own places of work. So I think that requires every organization um, to up their game. Uh, when it comes to leadership and, and, and what type of culture do they have that uh, will be flexible because everybody's needs as a result of COVID are, are different. They very much are. Um, so Mike, uh, final question. How, how do you help companies? Because certainly one of the reasons I had you on was to tell your story because it's a beautiful story. Another reason is I know you're doing really wonderful work and you're helping transform organizations. So c- can you just share a little bit about the type of work that you do and how you can help companies transform their cultures? So um, I've always surrounded myself with people who are smarter and better than me. That's the mm-hmm. key to success. And about 10 years ago, I teamed up with a wonderful young lady, uh, Stacy Cunningham, mm-hmm. and um, she has developed a program around all of my material. And so we uh, started a consulting group, the Aegis Performance Group. Uh, mm-hmm. Website is apgleadership.com. But um, we have the ability to help organizations um, with assessments, uh, with putting the right people in the right job, and then training those people so that if you want to put a person who's really wonderful uh, technically and you want to put them in a leadership position, how do you uh, train them so that they don't end up driving people out? Hmm. And so um, we've helped um, organizations, healthcare, finance, cruise line industry, every industry. And, you know, we tailor every program to fit the needs of, of what uh, our customers are looking for. And so um, we've gotten some fantastic results. And to me, the in this line of work, the key to whether you're doing uh, good work or not is whether the client has you back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we've had some clients for, you know, five, six years that keep adding more and more programs every year. So uh, to me, that's the marker that we're making an impact. Um, so uh, it's, it's, uh, pretty rewarding work. 
Amazing. Well, Mike, thank you for your time uh, and congratulations on, on all of your incredible success, not only at the, you know, in the USS Benfold, but, but truly making an impact around the globe with your, your consulting work. So thank you so much for being on On Point. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. This podcast was produced by Broadreach Communications. I'm Andrea Lekashoff, and thanks for listening. For show notes and additional resources, visit brpr.ca forward slash podcast. Thank you.